guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. Are you hosting this week? It's not featured. It's oh, not featured by you? Is that what I said? <laughs> you changed it up. Threw me off my game. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I was just trying to see if you pay attention to me at all when I talk in the beginning. <laughs> Apparently, I pay more attention to you than you pay attention to yourself. So, <laughs> Apparently so. Mystery solved. <laughs> So we're not going to talk about the weather this week, Mandy. We're going to get right into this story. We are. It is a really interesting story. It's very unique. And this is a case that was suggested to us in through our Facebook group but by my friend Sarah, who has suggested cases before from the lovely state of Maryland where she lives. This is the story of a romantic weekend murder mystery getaway turned real life murder in St. Michael's, Maryland. So before we get into the story, we're going to learn a little bit about St. Michael's, Maryland in this week's segment of We Googled This City. St. Michael's is a coastal town in Maryland, and as of the 2000 census, there were only around 1,100 residents, with the average age of the town being 50 years old, which is really like my kind of people. So St. Michael's was originally thought to be of as a shipbuilding town, but after the War of 1812, the oyster industry revived the sleepy town. Very interesting facts, but now yeah. they're going to get interesting. <laughs> so speaking of the War of 1812, the town actually had a really huge role in the War of 1812. In 1813, so it's 1812 adjacent, there was a large British fleet that moved up the Chesapeake Bay and targeted St. Michael's. So the residents of St. Michael's somehow got word about this attack, and they decided to try and trick these boats looking to harm them. So the townspeople grabbed all their lanterns and hoisted them up high in the mast of their sailboats and even on the tops of the trees. And everyone in, in town was told to keep their lanterns off in their own home that night. So the highlights that were up at like where the boats were and everything actually caused the British to overshoot the town and only one home was hit by cannonball fire. And the cannonball literally fell through the roof and rolled down the stairs. I thought that was crazy, like that they all came together before the internet, before texting. And they yeah. were like, we're going to all do this together. <laughs> like, how did you even get that kind of information out there? I clearly think no one is even able to talk in face-to-face. Like, that's just not an option to me. So <laughs> blown away. The Cannonball House and the town of St. Michael's is actually referred to as the town that fooled the British. And if you're trying to imagine what St. Michael's looks like, the 2004 movie Wedding Crashers starring Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson was partially filmed in St. Michael's. And I remember thinking that movie was so beautiful, like, right? Like the scenery and stuff. It was such so... a beautiful film. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know. as soon as I said that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I saw a bunch of not so pretty things in that movie. But like where it was just looked so picturesque to me. I thought it was really beautiful. And now... Mandy, I've got to get out of here. I've got a stage five clinger. A stage five clinger. <laughs> I hope just, it's not me. <laughs> honestly, I can't really say that in front of all these people, but maybe. <laughs> this is how I tell you. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> so Kimberly and Steve Rico seem to be an average middle class married couple. They had all of the typical things that any other couple had. They had a child, a nice home, they had pets, and they both had full-time jobs. Kimberly was a surgical technician at a local hospital while Steve worked as a superintendent of golf courses in Maryland and in Western Pennsylvania. The two of them had met nine years earlier at Penn State after being introduced by mutual friends and quickly falling head over heels in love with each other. 
Although Kim had a larger-than-life personality, she had struggled in her romantic life and had all but resided herself to the idea that she would never find a man to settle down with and start a life with. Steve happened to be in the exact same position as Kim, so the stars kind of aligned when Steve's childhood best friend named Mike Miller and his girlfriend at the time, Maureen, set Kim and Steve up on a date. Maureen had actually worked with Kim at a steakhouse during college and thought that she might be a good match for Steve, so they set up a double date to introduce the pair. Kim and Steve hit it off immediately. Steve was what could be considered a giant teddy bear of a person. He was very warm, very inviting. He was sweet, gentle, very kind. He was just the type of guy who would do anything for anyone. And Kim had actually grown up in a pretty rough environment. Her parents got divorced when she was very young, and her mother remarried an abusive man, and Kim took a great deal of abuse as a child. Kim was drawn to the kindness and stability that Steve could offer, and she quickly latched on. About five months into their new relationship, Kim got pregnant and Steve asked her to marry him. The couple got married in March of 1989 with their best friends, Mike and Maureen, at their sides. And just a few months later, the couple's baby girl, Anna, was born. Anna was a fussy baby. And at first, Steve wasn't even sure really what to do with a baby, which I get it. I didn't know what to do with my babies either. But the couple seemed to be navigating new parenthood just fine. Steve got a job at Iron Masters Country Club in Roaring Spring, Pennsylvania, and the new family moved away. But that ended up being a short-lived gig for Steve, who eventually quit that job after some tension with some of the board members, and the couple moved in with Steve's parents while he looked for a new job and while Kim went to school to become a surgical tech. During this time, Steve was a full-time stay-at-home dad, and his relationship with Anna really blossomed, but his relationship with Kim seemed to be getting a little bit more strained, although it was really nothing super alarming. People who knew them just assumed it was kind of this whole juggling act, you know, with this new baby, and, you know, she's in school, and he's staying home with the baby, and just typical stuff that, you know, people go through, couples go through in life. Right. Kim and Steve stayed in touch with Mike and Maureen, although they saw each other less frequently. But when they did get together, Mike said the marriage between Steve and Kim seemed to be pretty good, except for some small little things, you know, like Kim would be a little bit nitpicky of Steve. And especially when it came to if Steve went out with his friends and stayed out later than Kim liked, she would get a little bit upset about that. But that was really a rare occurrence anyway. Steve wasn't much of a party or he didn't really go out a whole lot at all. Mike and Maureen eventually had children of their own and drifted even further apart from Kim and Steve. Mike and Steve would still chat frequently on the phone, but Kim stopped returning Maureen's calls altogether. Then on one day in 1997, Steve called Mike nearly in tears and confided in him that there were some serious problems in his marriage with Kim. Kim had evidently asked Steve for a divorce, and the couple had been struggling quite a bit over personality differences. Like, Kim was actually very, very outgoing and social, while Steve was more introverted and preferred his quiet life. And I can totally see how that would be kind of a struggle of wills, really. Once Kim began working as a surgical tech, she started hanging around with a different crowd than she had before. Now she was rubbing elbows with rich doctors and surgeons, and she was really just eating it up. Steve, on the other hand, was not as fond of Kim's new friends. Having worked on a golf course and dealing with many of these upper-class doctor types, he had a much different opinion of them than Kim did. Steve really felt that these doctors and such were phony, and he didn't like the stress of having to put on a show for them. And, you know, he knew that his family wasn't in the same boat financially or socially as these people that Kim was now hanging around. He enjoyed his quiet life and wasn't really fond of Kim's desire to host parties and to go out with this socialite crowd. 
Kim continued to isolate herself from her good friend Maureen, which Maureen assumed was because Kim worried that anything she told her would get back to Steve. But then one day in November of 1997, Kim randomly contacted Maureen and asked if she could come for a visit. Kim said that she would be in town for a friend's bachelorette party and asked Maureen if a few of them could come over and crash at her house. Maureen agreed, and she met up with the party bunch at a bar later on in the evening of the bachelorette party. Among those attending the party was a man named Brad Winkler. Maureen noticed almost instantly that something was really odd about the way that Kim and Brad were interacting with each other. For one thing, Brad kept talking about his failed marriage, and Kim would chime in with her own comments. At one point, Kim even said something along the lines of, if only I were 10 years younger, implying that she would like to be in some kind of relationship with Brad, which Maureen was put off by because Kim was married. That's such a weird, a weird thing to say. Yeah. You know, in her position, if she's married and this is your husband's friend, like you guys all know each other to say something so brazen is yikes. It's just a really fast way to make everything awkward between everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I can do that about like a million things. This not this, but I can make things really, really awkward. But this is, I mean, brazen to me. Like you just don't care who hears anything at this point. So the next morning after everyone had spent the night at Maureen's, Kim was one of the last to leave and she sat down and talked to Maureen. She mentioned being really envious of Maureen's perfect life with her perfect house, her perfect job, and her perfect husband. And Maureen was confused because she and Kim both had the same things in life. But at this point, it was clear that there was trouble in paradise and that Kim and Steve's marriage was in danger. Several weeks later, Kim asked Steve for a divorce. Steve was absolutely devastated and he didn't want to give up on his marriage. So at the advice of his good friend, Mike, he convinced Kim to go to marriage counseling. The couple also started seeing their own counselor separately, and Steve began taking medication for depression. Things appeared to be getting on the right track in Steve and Kim's marriage, and in the middle of January of 1998, Steve asked Mike if he had any ideas for romantic things to do for Valentine's Day. At the time, Mike was employed at Harbortown, which is a golf resort in St. Michael's, Maryland. St. Michael's, Maryland is a quaint and quiet location on the Miles River and the Chesapeake Bay, and all of the rooms have waterfront view and a relaxing patio or balcony. Mike told Steve that the resort had planned to host a special murder mystery Valentine's dinner. So for the price of $239, the couple could participate in the mystery dinner and stay in a nice cottage at the resort for the night. A bottle of champagne was even included to set the mood for a romantic weekend. Steve booked the trip, and he felt really excited to be getting out of town with his wife with this goal of working to rekindle their marriage on his mind. The couple, along with a 100 other couples, checked into their cottages on February 14th and made their way to the dinner theater at around 7.30 p.m. The title of the mystery play that would be put on was The Bride Who Cried, and the cast of the play mingled with the guests in what was largely an improvisational show. Have you ever been to one of these dinner mystery theater things? I haven't, and it sounds so interesting, and I wonder if we have any here. We do. We do. We We do. do. Yeah, I've gone a couple times. I went with my in-laws or my brother-in-law and sister, and I went with when I worked for the doctor's office. This was like a big thing that we did. (laughs) I was like, wow, all these things go together, and it's so much fun. It is so, so much fun. It's kind of cheesy, but it's a blast, and like you really, really get into it. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. It sounds really fun. So Kim was very into the performance and she participated very enthusiastically and she was even going around to the other tables and listening in on their discussions to get more information so that she could solve this mystery. The groom in this play had been poisoned to death after drinking tainted champagne and in the end, it was Kim who figured out who had done it. 
Once the dinner was over, the Rickos stopped to buy a few beers to take back to their hotel room with them, and it was assumed that they had turned in for the night, just like everybody else. But just a couple of hours later, at 1.21 in the morning, Kim walked into the hotel lobby and plainly stated that her hotel room was on fire. And we have a lot more to get into with this case, but we are going to take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. Oh, Instacart, how I love thee. Let me count the ways. Numbers one through 100 would literally be how much time I have saved. When I ordered my Instacart order over the weekend, a screen popped up on Instacart and actually told me how many hours I've saved total while using an Instacart shopper. I've actually saved over 30 hours using Instacart. That's like watching an entire season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and New York, which would be absolutely heaven. And not only that, I've saved 30 hours of my sanity, and that is a real special thing because I barely have any left. It is so hot in Central Florida right now. The last thing I want to do is grab my spawn, head to the grocery store, only to get back into a hot car with fussy kids. That's why I love Instacart. I don't have to deal with any of this. If you're not familiar with Instacart, here's what I did. I downloaded the Instacart app, picked out my grocery store from a list available to me in my area, and put in a quick order to be shopped for and delivered to my house by a friendly Instacart shopper. The Instacart shopper gathers your groceries with care by selecting excellent produce, and if there are any issues with the order, they will contact you when necessary. Instacart will deliver your groceries in as little as one hour or at a time you select. They bag them so your hot items stay hot and your cold items stay cold. Try Instacart and get $10 off your first order. To get this limited time offer, go to instacart.com or download the mobile app and enter our promo code MOMS10 at checkout. That's $10 off your first order today at instacart.com or through the mobile app. And don't forget to enter our code MOMS10. Instacart.com or through the mobile app with our code MOMS10 at checkout. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we talked about how Kim, you know, had gone to the hotel lobby at this nice resort that they're staying at and just kind of said that her room was on fire. So hotel employees rushed to the cottage where Kim and Steve had been staying. And when they got there, they strangely did not see any fire, but they did notice a strange burning smell. They said that it smelled like something was melting. When they entered the room, Steve Rico was found lying face up on the floor with beer cans and a pack of cigars near his body. From the waist up, he was badly burned. 
Police arrived on the scene to find Kim responding in a pretty typical manner, and she appeared to be very distraught over news that her husband had died. When detectives questioned Kim about the time leading up to the accident, she explained that her husband had planned this romantic getaway for the two of them, but that she was not very excited about the trip herself because she had just undergone a procedure the previous day and she felt exhausted and drained after this test. The couple dropped their daughter Anna off at a friend's house for the night and then drove to St. Michael's and Kim said that she slept for most of the car ride there. When they got there, Kim said that she started a fire in the fireplace and put on a pot of coffee because she was cold. And she did open the complimentary champagne and poured each of them a glass. But she said that she didn't drink hers because it was cheap and she did not like the taste. So she said that Steve ended up finishing off the whole bottle of champagne himself before they went to dinner. She also told the police that Steve took his antidepressant as well as an anti-anxiety medication and a muscle relaxant also before they went to dinner. From there, she claimed that they both drank heavily, sharing a bottle of wine with another couple at the play and then ordering several beers from the cash bar at the resort. After the dinner, Kim said they returned to their room where Steve continued to drink to the point of being drunk and tried to get Kim to have sex with him, but she wasn't in the mood and then they just argued about it. According to her, they had not been intimate with each other in months, and they had previously agreed that this particular weekend would just be for relaxing, and they had agreed that they would not be intimate during this weekend. So when Steve actually came on to her, she got really upset and allegedly left the room to distance herself from Steve and this argument. So Kim said that she drove around for a while and considered driving herself home, but then she went back to the hotel because she felt bad that if she left, Stephen wouldn't have any way to get home the next day. When Kim returned to the hotel, she realized that she had forgotten or misplaced her room key, and so she went around to the sliding door on the patio, and she thought that was unlocked. When she opened the door, thick smoke and heat came out, and she believed that there was a fire in her room. She frantically made her way to the resort lobby, calling 911 on the way. After listening to Kim's story and assessing the scene, you know, they saw the beer cans and the cigars, police believed that Steve had died in a tragic what they called a smoker's accident in which he had accidentally lit something on fire with a cigar and was just too intoxicated to realize what had happened. The theory fit with Kim's account of the entire evening. And so the medical examiner believed that this would be a very routine and a very quick investigation. But the more they learned, the more suspicious Steve's death began to look. During the autopsy, it was revealed that Steve had no burns in his trachea, no soot in his lungs, no carbon monoxide in his system, and no alcohol in his system. From these findings, the medical examiner determined that however Steve had died had nothing at all to do with the fire and that he was actually dead before any fire ever started. The lack of alcohol in his blood also called Kim's story into question since she claimed that he had drank heavily and was intoxicated when she left him in the room. Friends and family of the couple also believe that the story of an accidental fire caused by cigars was suspicious because not only was Steve not much of a drinker, but Steve didn't smoke. It made no sense to anyone why he would have been smoking cigars and getting drunk on this particular night when he was really just trying to spend quality time with Kim. The day after the murder, a friend of Kim's contacted the police to say that she did not believe Steve had died by accident and she pointed her finger directly at Kim as the culprit. More of Kim's own friends started to come forward with really shocking information related to this investigation. One friend told police how Kim had talked about her failing marriage on multiple occasions and that in the months leading up to Steve's death, she had become extremely negative about her marriage. 
She would tell her friends that she had zero feelings for Steve and that he would be better off dead than divorced because she felt that he was pathetic and wouldn't be able to carry on without her. Didn't he make it his whole life until he met her alive? Yeah, Yeah, I just... That's so, like, narcissistic. Would that be the right word for that? Yeah. Well, to say to say that you think somebody would better be better off dead because they can't live without you, that's – I don't even know of a word for that. Yeah. I, I feel like there's something clinical there, but I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I couldn't tell you. But yeah, that just is so gross to even say that about your spouse, the person you love or you should love, that you just say, ah, oh, you know. I would divorce him, but he wouldn't survive without me. Give me a break. Right. Yeah. So she actually even said to a friend that if she knew she could get away with killing Steve, she would do it in a heartbeat. And she even contemplated ways that she could persuade Steve to take his own life so that she wouldn't have to do it. It's just the amount of thought that she put into this is really shocking. So one of her ideas was to reveal this affair that she'd been having with Brad in hopes that Steve would become so upset that he would end his own life. Little did Steve or anyone really know that Kim's affair had been quite a bit more involved than just a few flirtatious comments with Brad. They had been sleeping together for quite some time, and Kim had become infatuated with this idea of a relationship with him and with the idea of getting Steve out of the way. According to Kim's co-workers, she had actually taken this plan pretty far in her mind. In December of 1997, two months before Steve's death, Kim had approached one of her co-workers and basically just blurted out that she wanted to kill her husband. The co-worker thought that it was some kind of joke, as anyone would, and made a kind of just played along with it, made jokes about it. He kind of unwittingly gave Kim an idea. He said, hey, you know, you work in an operating room. You could always just put him to sleep. Like, ha, 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 which I still think is a very strange thing to say. But it is. But I do understand that. And being in the medical stuff, like I've heard that even with nurses and our friend Kim with People Are Wild, she's like the jokes that people end up making in that because the situations are so stressful and stuff are just more not morbid, but they can be. And so I don't, Yeah, I get it. Like it does sound really kind of crazy, but you're just like, that's kind of what they deal with every day. So it's kind of um, a way to deal really. You know, yeah. you wouldn't think somebody's like, oh yeah, I'm taking notes now. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I feel like that's a comment that was said like to kind of lighten the mood and right. make, you know, make light of everything. And it wouldn't be a big deal if Steve didn't end up Right. Dying. Absolutely. You know, you nobody would have ever thought this was a weird comment or you wouldn't have even thought twice about it. Right. After this conversation, Kim had this light bulb moment and the wheel started turning. She wondered what would be the best drug to pull off a murder. She considered various anesthesia drugs and sodium pentothal. But when she learned about a drug called succinylcholine, she thought it would be the perfect one. Succinylcholine is a medication commonly found in operating rooms and is used to cause short-term paralysis as part of general anesthesia. Kim's co-worker explained to her that, to the best of her knowledge, injecting this drug muscularly would cause the recipient to lose muscle control, including the muscles that make you breathe, and eventually the person would be unable to take in a breath and they would die of oxygen deprivation. When this drug is used on patients in the operating room, it is the responsibility of the anesthesiologist to ensure that some sort of artificial ventilation is done or the patient will die. 
The drug is extremely fast acting and can take effect within five seconds of being administered, making it highly dangerous and only to be used under the very close care of a professional. So you know what I learned from this? When you have surgery, you should tip your anesthesiologist prior right? to going under. <laughs> I, I mean, I know like a, a little about the, you know, drugs and the anesthesiologist use very little. I had no idea that it could really kill you in five seconds if they're not monitoring you so closely. Like, oh my gosh. And breathing. <laughs> they have to breathe for you. They and, have to. Yeah, but you, just, I just can't even get it. Because like you meet your anesthesiologist typically in surgery, like, right before you go in. It's just like a, hey, nice to see you. I'm your anesthesiologist. I'll see you in there. You know, talk to you soon. That's about it. You don't really have like consultations with them a lot. I mean, sometimes you have a little bit, but every surgery I've had, it's just like, hey, how's it going? See you in there. You're going to count down from 10. It'll be fine. What? (laughs) (laughs) And now reading this whole thing, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so much stress. Like, please. Yeah. So I think you should tip. I think that's a profession and you should tip. Yeah. (laughs) We'll start a movement for tipping your anesthesiologist. (laughs) So another convenient fact for Kim was that succinylcholine was readily available in the operating room and for some reason, not as heavily inventoried as some of the narcotic drugs. So it would actually be really easy for her to sneak a dose of this out of the hospital, which considering how dangerous it is, that just blew my mind. I know. They would not keep very, very close tabs on something like that. Not only had Kim been going around to her friends planting little seeds of her murderous intentions, but she also freely admitted to this affair that she was having with Brad. And it just so happened that Brad was the cousin of Kim's close friend, Jennifer. And Kim didn't even try to hide the affair from her at all. When Jennifer got married and went off on her honeymoon, Brad stayed at her townhome and Kim would go over there every day and carry on this affair in her friend's home and for Brad in his cousin's home while she's on vacation. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the whole thing is just strange. When Jennifer got back from her honeymoon, Kim was all too excited to share every little sordid detail of her encounters with Brad and got really upset when Jennifer just could not accept the affair as something that people just do. Kim was very clear that she had no intention or desire to end this affair. And we're going to talk more about the details of this case after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. We've been talking to you guys for a while now about third love, and that's because we love our third love bras. And as of February 20th of this year, third love now offers 78 different sizes, including their signature half cup sizes. Third love has changed the way we buy bras. You can skip the trip to the store and find the perfect fit by taking the fit finder quiz on the website. And it's there where you can order your bra to be shipped straight to your home. And you can try on your bra in your messy bun in your messy closet with no strangers around. One of the greatest things about Third Love is their 100% fit guarantee. After taking their Fit Finder quiz and ordering your new bra, you can wear it, wash it, and put it to the test for 60 days. I thought the quiz was super fun, and I even learned a lot about bras with the quiz. And if you buy a Third Love bra, you can return it within 60 days, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love is hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned, and I know it will be the same for you. With straps that won't slip and my personal favorite, tagless labels, there is no itching. This is the bra all other bras wish they could be. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering our listeners 15% off your first order. 
Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. Florida in the spring is a beautiful thing, and I want to be able to enjoy all of it. To do that, I need to give my body a little support this season, and you can do the same, whether you're looking for energy, better sleep, or something else that can help you feel your healthiest. That's why I love my Care Of subscription. Care Of subscription services make it easy to get vitamins, protein powders, and more personalized just for you, delivered straight to your door. Care Of offers a fun online quiz that asks you questions about your diet, your health goals, and lifestyle choices, and it only takes about five minutes to find out your personal, scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. Since it can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. I took the quiz, which was super fast and also fun, and I was able to be really specific in what I was looking for in vitamins and supplements, which is basically just energy to deal with day-to-day life. One of the questions Care Of asked in my quiz was whether or not I had been told I have low iron, which is something my doctor tells me every time I see him. So they included an iron supplement in my daily pack as well. Care of delivers daily vitamin and supplement packs along with protein and more, and it's all customized to your recommendations, so you're only taking what you really need and no fillers. Your personalized Care of subscription box gets sent right to your door every month with personalized daily packs, which is great for busy on-the-go lifestyles. And I love that my daily packs have my name on them and a fun little quote or joke to start my day off on the right foot. For 30% off your first Care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter Moms30. Again, for 30% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter moms30. Now back to the episode. On January 29th, Kim had made plans to visit an old friend named Rachel in Baltimore the following day, but then she canceled the plans really suddenly, so Rachel made other plans for the evening. When Rachel returned home at around 10 p.m., she had numerous messages from Kim waiting for her, and in each message, Kim sounded more and more distressed, and she was saying she needed Rachel to return her call right away. Rachel returned the call, and Kim begged her to come over, saying it was really urgent. When Rachel arrived at Kim and Steve's home at around 11.30 p.m., it was clear that she had been drinking. Steve was upstairs, and their daughter Anna was at a friend's house for the night. Kim was hysterical, and she told Rachel that night that she had come up with this plan to murder Steve. She specifically told Rachel that she could get a drug at work that would cause Steve's muscles to become paralyzed and that this drug was untraceable. She further stated that she would use a cigar or a candle to light the curtains in their home on fire with Steve inside. Rachel made attempts at this point to reason with Kim, asking her how she planned to do all this and how was she going to get away with it, and Kim really had an answer for everything. It appeared that she was completely serious about her plan to kill Steve. After the conversation, Rachel said that Kim was in a catatonic state and pretty much just sat on the floor staring off into space. Rachel was terrified at what Kim could do, so she called a mutual friend and told them about these things that Kim was telling her. While she was on the phone with this mutual friend, she saw Kim get up from the floor and walk up the stairs to where Steve was sleeping. Rachel obviously was terrified that she was going to kill him right that second, so she hangs up with a friend and runs upstairs to find Kim standing over Steve, staring at him blankly. Rachel convinces Kim to come back downstairs, and they sit for a couple more hours before Kim goes upstairs and goes to sleep. So Rachel sits around for about a half an hour after Kim goes to sleep to make sure she's really asleep, and then Rachel leaves to go to her house that night. How scary would that be to leave? Yeah. And not know like what is going to happen, like what you're going to find out in the morning if something has happened. Yeah. So that would be so terrifying. And then can you imagine that 30 minutes you're sitting after Kim's asleep? Like, what are you thinking the entire time? It's just got to yeah. be like your mind has to be racing. 
So the following morning, Rachel calls Kim in hopes that, you know, the light of day and sobriety would have knocked some sort of sense into her. And Kim says everything's fine. But when Rachel asked whether or not she planned on actually killing Steve, Kim said she didn't know what she was going to do. And that was the last time Rachel talked to Kim before Steve was killed two weeks later. And so we're assuming at this point, I mean, she obviously didn't call the police. We just know she called the one friend. When Kim's friends began coming forward and telling the police all of these things, they felt that they had enough for a search warrant. They had timed these. They wanted to serve two search warrants, one for the Rico home and one for Kim's car. So they actually timed these warrants to be executed at the exact same time. At the time that the warrants were being served, Kim was at Mike and Maureen's home while her mother, Lois, was at her home with her daughter, Anna. Police spent hours searching the Rico home and confiscated several items, including letters written by Steve to Kim that were really professing his love and his desire to work on their problems. I had read a few things that the friends had said that they had seen these letters and that these letters were really gut-wrenching and just really, um, Mm. you could really tell that Steve was very committed to fixing his marriage and he really wanted nothing more than to make him happy. That's really all he wanted. And he outlined this in great detail in several love letters that the police confiscated. They also took two life insurance pamphlets, a box of sympathy cards from the funeral, a cremation certificate for Steve's body, a phone bill, a checkbook, and some articles that were printed off the internet regarding divorce and child custody. They also found two life insurance policies that totaled $450,000 that they believed Kim had actually forged the signatures on. It was not Steve's actual signature on those Since Kim was at Maureen's house sleeping when the police arrived to search her car, Maureen had to actually go and wake her up and let her know that they were there. Kim was highly irritated, and when she got downstairs and saw the police, she kind of just angrily tossed her keys in their direction so that they could get into her car. At this point, Maureen is furious, and she kind of suspects that something is definitely going on and that her friend Kim has been lying to her. Up to this point, Maureen has been a very supportive friend, even though her husband Mike has not been quite as supportive and has been a little bit more suspicious and more thinking with the police. But Maureen was loyal to her friend and didn't want to – what she said to her husband – Mike was that she didn't want to turn her back on Kim and then find out later that Kim was innocent Mm -hmm. and, you know, everyone had turned her back, you know, their back on her at a time when she really needed a friend. So Maureen was very committed to this idea of supporting Kim, you know, all throughout this. But at this point, when the police are there at her home, they're issuing search warrants. At some point, you're like, okay, like what really is going on? So Maureen is getting really upset. She told Kim straight up that she needed to come clean about whatever happened. And Kim was very flippant about it. And she said that she would tell them everything after she took a bath. All of this while the police are downstairs searching her car. She said she wanted to go get in the bath. If I'm innocent, I don't want to take a bath while the police are there. Like, what? Right. That doesn't even make any sense. What happens if they find something and want you? Now, now you... You look like a drowning rat. Like, nobody looks cute coming out of a bath. Yeah. It almost is, though, just like trying to hide from the situation. Like, she was looking for anything she could do to just, like, not deal with it, But in denial. Because that, I mean, that is a serious denial to want to take a bath. 
I have to take a shower before I even take a bath. So it's going to be a very long process. (laughs) It kind of reminded me of the Golden State Killer, the whole idea. I remember him saying like, oh, I have a roast in the oven. Right. I just have this one other thing to do before anything else happens. But then the bath thing makes no sense. Like baths are supposed to be relaxing. The police searching through your car, even if you've done nothing wrong, is not a relaxing situation. No, exactly. So at some point while Kim was holed up in the bathroom, she took an unknown medication in an excessive dose in an attempt to take her own life. Maureen called for an ambulance and Kim was rushed to the hospital where she was stabilized and she was made to spend a couple of days before she ended up getting transferred to a psychiatric hospital. Then at around four in the morning on February 25th, Kim was arrested and detained without bail. Because she was on suicide watch and because she had been in a psychiatric facility, it was decided that Kim would need to undergo a psychiatric evaluation to determine whether she was competent to stand trial. And she was, they found. So a grand jury had a year to return an indictment in this case, and they really took their sweet time. Almost the full year passed, and Kim was actually starting to think that she was going to get off, you know, scot-free and not have to answer for any of this. But then at the last minute, the indictment came down. Kim's trial began in 1999, and if she was found guilty, she would be facing life in prison with an additional 30-year sentence for arson. The prosecution started off strong and told the jury all about Kim's affair and the motive that she had to murder her husband. But the defense had some strong points as well. The medical examiner was never able to determine the cause of death because succinylcholine is an untraceable drug, and the fire investigators that responded to the scene were also never able to determine exactly what had started the fire. So they had this theory that she had also used some type of undetectable accelerant to start the fire, and that that was why they never could quite figure it out. Mm -hmm. Even though they did find the cigars next to Steve's body, they noticed that there was one cigar missing from the pack, but they never found the missing cigar in the room. Yeah. They never really were able to prove, like, what started this fire. So it would seem that these things would provide enough reasonable doubt to potentially set Kim free, but the testimony of her own friends is what eventually sealed her fate. If Kim hadn't gone around telling everyone who would listen about this plan to murder her husband and really in great detail, this would have been the perfect crime and she may have gotten away with it. She was absolutely furious at her trial and she would actually sit and give her former friends the middle finger while they were testifying against her. And at one point, the judge had to threaten to have her removed from the courtroom if she didn't stop doing that. That's so crazy. I don't feel like I've ever seen that. You see like maybe a couple like really crazy criminals that like will yell out in court and stuff, but I've never any any defense really you see them just like sitting there quietly no matter what's said or they might whisper to their you know counsel, but they never flick off the witnesses. Like that's yeah. crazy. I've never heard of that. Yeah. So the closing arguments in the case began on January 14th, 1999, and after four hours of deliberation, a jury returned a guilty verdict. So she was sentenced to life in prison, and she also did get the 30 years tacked on for the arson. And something interesting that I came across while I was researching this case was an article that Kim um, had written from jail for the Marshall Project, which I've heard of. Have you heard of the Marshall Project, Melissa? I have, but I couldn't tell you what it was. Okay, so it's a nonprofit news organization that covers the U.S. criminal justice system. So if you go to the website, themarshallproject.com, 
It's pretty cool. It includes written works from those that live inside what they call the system. So lawyers, prisoners, judges, victims, law enforcement officers, anybody who has really had an experience within the criminal justice system can submit articles. They can write, you know, and have it submitted. They can submit poetry. They can submit fiction, essays about their experiences whatever it is. So Kim, I found an article that Kim had submitted and wrote, and I got a kick out of it because it was relevant to all the Game of Thrones fans out there. This article is titled, This Prison Won't Let Me Read Game of Thrones. And it, (laughs) yeah, so it talks a little bit about things that are considered prison contraband, like no cash, no stickers and glitter, no cards, no Polaroid pictures. Apparently you can hide drugs inside of the white part of a Polaroid, Watch 60 I guess. Days in, you can hide drugs in anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They can't have markers and crayons, and apparently they also cannot have any Game of Thrones books because they have maps in them, and maps are considered contraband, even though these are fake maps oh of fake gosh. places. <laughs> so she was very upset about that and wrote an article, which I just thought was really interesting. I thought the, art- the article was actually really interesting. I learned a lot about what prison considers contraband. So you might want to check that out. We'll link that article in the show notes, of course. I just thought it was really interesting. I love that glitter is contraband because personally, I think glitter should be contraband worldwide. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole, you know, oh my gosh, I'm going off on a tangent now, but it's okay because we're at the end of the episode. That is like a whole conspiracy. Did you know that what glitter is made out of is like a top secret thing? Have you ever tried to look into it? No, of course not. I just see (laughs) glitter and I get like rage in my eyes (laughs) like because you know you're going to see it for a year. There's like two, really just one major glitter manufacturer that monopolizes all of the glitter production. It is top, top, top secret. You cannot find out what glitter is made of and people speculate like, I don't even know. I mean, there are some crazy conspiracy theories about what glitter is made out of. And I don't know why it's so like such a secret, but I don't know. I don't know what, what do people it think out it's of. made like, out of. I don't know. I've I mean, of course, I know I've looked into it, but I don't want to say. OK, you don't have to say. <laughs> well, I just Googled it and all it says is glitter is made of some kind some kind of non biodegradable material. So some kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like no one even knows. super vague. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I thought you were going to say like for drugs or something, they wouldn't allow glitter in. But I think, I think the prisoners or I'm sorry, like the wardens and stuff are like, no, I'm really tired of coming home with this stuff all over myself. Yeah. No glitters. (laughs) No glitter. So before we get out of here, we're going to do our last thing before we go. We have a couple of good questions this week that I'm really, really excited about. Mostly just this first one that poor Melissa can just sit there and roll her eyes over. So Shelly in our Facebook group wants to know about my chickens names. Did you delete my chickens names that I wrote down? No, it was never there. I would never do that. (laughs) You did, didn't you? I swear to you, I would never ever in a million years do that. I saw it like this the whole time. It was never there. I swear I wrote them in my notes and they're gone. (laughs) Mandy and I share a Google Doc so we can delete things as we go along and everything. (laughs) And I'm now being accused of deleting chicken names. How petty do you think I am that I would delete your chicken names? I don't know. I don't know. Very petty is the answer. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All of my chickens don't have names. I have a lot of chickens. We have like 30 chickens now. So I don't have, they can't all be named. There's just no possible way. I've mentioned on the show before that I have a white rooster and his name is Walter White. And that's the only chicken I have that Melissa shows any respect to. I respect him. I respect him in his journey. And he's awesome. But now we have a bunch of roosters. So we have four roosters. 
I only have named that one Walter White. My son has given the other roosters like boring names like Pete and Ugh. John. Is there a Bob? Because you can blame my daughter because all she talks about is Bob. I actually think there is a Bob. Yep. So so then I have the other ones that are named. I have one hen that I've had a very long time. She's a bantam or just a little small, tiny chicken. And her name is Emmy because she has black feathers, but they look green in the sunlight. So Emmy is short for emerald. And she is one of my favorite chickens. And then I have one named Henrietta. And she's a red chicken with yellow feet, just like your classic red hen. And I thought Henrietta was a perfect name for her. And then I have one named Pom Pom because it has like a pom pom head. Wow. And you made fun of your son's <laughs> names. <laughs> I'm just saying. So the way I name chickens, though, it's just kind of like if I call one of them something and it sticks, then that's how they get their name. So I know one you have that you haven't mentioned. It's my favorite one. Who? Naked Neck Nikki. Naked Neck Nikki. I'm so glad you brought her up. <laughs> yeah, she's a, a turkin. <laughs> Wait, is shut up. Is that a real thing? And I said shut up to Mandy in a joking way. Nobody send an email about that. It's just a joke. <laughs> yeah. So she's a type of chicken. She's a chicken breed that does not have any feathers on her neck. So she literally has a naked neck. So yeah. So I call her naked neck Nikki. I thought it was a turkin because it made it a turkey and a chicken. Oh my gosh, Melissa. I don't even think that is like, excuse me, donkeys are a thing. And I don't even remember how that works. <laughs> <laughs> what does that have to do? I don't think turkeys and chickens can make babies. But anyway, so but those we don't are know. a few of the names of my chickens. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay. So next question. Gabrielle wants to know, what's one thing that we splurge on for ourselves that we are not willing to give up? Here's the thing. I would give up anything. Like if it came down to it, it's nothing I do that's any fun for myself? Would I not just be like, eh, okay, money's short. I'll give up on that. I don't care. But the one thing I do like that I've only been doing really for the last year, which sounds crazy, I get my hair cut and colored by like an, a real person. <laughs> not colored, but like highlight, like highlights. I used to always do the cap thing. And now I'm like, wow, my hair doesn't look brassy. Not that everyone that does that looks brassy, but mine always look brassy. And then I would be highlighting on top of highlights. And I look at pictures like my senior year, my graduation, I had the most orange hair in the entire world. And I just thought no one, no one said anything to you. <laughs> so like no one cared to be like, you know what, maybe for your senior year and your graduation, maybe, maybe you could go to somebody that's done this before. Nope. Nobody said anything. So that is like the one thing that now that I've done, um, I found a lady on Groupon who I really love and I go to her and that's like, that's my treat thing that I do every three or four months or when I can. So I really thought about this question kind of long and hard because I'm the same as you. Like, I don't really have anything that I say I splurge on that I wouldn't give up or that I just, you know, have to have. Right. I feel like for me, I do a lot of going out to lunch. That is a splurge that I do. And really, it saves my sanity because being home with two kids all the time, I lose my mind. And in the, in the middle of the day, I have so many days where I'm like, you know what, let's just drop everything and leave the house. And but like, what is there to do? You know, so we always go out to eat. And it's something I do probably way too much. I could save so much money if I would just make same, lunch at home. Same. But I love going out to lunch. I don't know. There's just something about being able to get out of the house in the middle of the day and find, you know, just go pick somewhere to eat and it kill times and kill time. Yeah. Exactly. So that would be mine. 
That would be a hard one to give up, I will say, for it, sure. It would be hard to give up. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So we'll do one more quick one since the first question was really all about me. So Jackie wants to know if you could move to any other state, where would it be and why? I, I'm i a Florida person, and I literally realize this about myself more and more every day. It should be concerning. I'm embracing it. Send me all your Florida memes. I don't care. I love it here. But I feel like I would be most comfortable in Georgia or Carolina. What? Yeah. I like I'm from North Florida, which is South Georgia. I love Georgia. I think Georgia is beautiful. And I feel like that's kind of like it wouldn't be so different for me. Like move me to somewhere where it's really cold. I would have a really hard time. It'd be beautiful, but I couldn't do it. I like Utah, too. I think Utah looks beautiful, but I don't think I could live there because I am used to the weather here. I don't know. I'm kind of spoiled. I like being able to be outside all year round. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of boring. But yeah, I think Georgia or like North or South Carolina, like just up this way. And it's probably one of those like ignorance things that I just haven't been anywhere else. So I'm like, "Mm, mm, that's what I know. I'm like Charlie from what is it? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. He had never left Philadelphia. And that's how I kind of feel. I like very rarely venture out. And I think the rest of the country is really beautiful. But that's where I'm probably most comfortable. And I like being around family. I I can't live not near family, <laughs> which sounds so yeah. sad, but I do love living close to family. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I'm kind of the same way. I love living in Florida. I know Florida catches a lot of heat. I mean, literally and figuratively. I really don't want to live anywhere else. I am such a beach person. Like you always make fun of me and you've even made fun of me on this show. But I have to be around the ocean and I know there's beach everywhere else, other places like the entire East Coast, you can find a beach, but I've seen other beaches and I am a beach snob and I like Florida beaches. And so really for that reason, I don't think I could leave Florida. But if I was going to live somewhere else, I don't know, I might go back to Texas because that's where like I do have family there and like that's where my my dad's side of the family is from and I lived there growing up a little bit. So Texas might be an option, maybe too hot in Texas, not really a lot, not really pretty beach. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm not leaving Florida ever. Well, I feel like we're not welcome after the way we've talked about everybody's (laughs) states. (laughs) We can just have Florida all to ourselves. Yeah, no, I, but I think there's so much in the country that I would like to visit. I would really love to visit places, but Florida is home. I mean, once you get used to it, you just don't want to leave. And by the way, everyone that gives us hate about Florida, people come from all over and move down here. Everybody up north, they retire and they move to Florida. There's a reason for it. Right. And nobody is cracking on it when they're coming here on vacation to enjoy all the things that Florida has to offer either. So how is the state of Florida not sponsoring? Like, how is the travel and everything not sponsoring us? How (laughs) we are the best (laughs) people for Florida. (laughs) Book your Florida vacation today. (laughs) There you go. Don't say it, Mandy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. So that is it for this week's episode. We will see you guys next week. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.